Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we should shudder to even hear these words being read this pinnacle of human history when your son gave his life and was forsaken by you to redeem sinners like us. I pray, Father, that you would give us the clarity that you desire us to have in seeing the great work that your son accomplished, the work that you ordained before the foundations of the world, that you might bring yourself honor and glory, much honor and much glory to the redemption of many, many souls. I ask, Father, for the right weight and the right joy to fill us this morning as we contemplate this darkest and most brilliant of days, as we see more clearly what, in fact, Christ did do for us and the result that ought to have on our hearts and minds. We're asking, Lord, that you would transform us, that you would make us into a holy people, that we would become the very saints that you desire us to be for your own glory, for Christ's name's sake, for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, we pray that you would make us that most glorious people, radiating glory back to you and rejoicing daily in the Son. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us this morning with your presence in Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. 
And for those of you who know your word well, you know that we're in that chapter. It's a chapter we've been building up to now for over a year. This is the pinnacle, this is the high point of the redemptive story. This is the death or the crucifixion. We'll see the death next week, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it's a shame if you've been in the church a while, sometimes the reading of these passages, especially if you're an Easter Christmas kind of Christian, you say, well, I hear this passage all the time. I pray it does not lose its weight. Not a single word in the Bible should be read with anything but utter awe and fear and joy, knowing that it is God who is speaking to us. The older I get, the less cooperative my eyes are are with me, especially on close-up. Everything gets fuzzy. That's why I have to wear these spectacles. It's the same with us in understanding human history, and it's the same with us in understanding our purpose in life. If we don't remain close to the cross of Christ, things become unclear. Robbie Zacharias said it well. He said, the cross of Christ is the crux of history. And then he said, without the cross, history cannot be defined or corrected. We cannot understand human history, particularly God's creation and the fall. And we cannot understand how to fix human history, particularly the redemption of man and the restoration of his creation, apart from the cross and apart from Christ. And so we've come to that point of great clarity. We've come to that point in our narrative, the supreme moment of God's redemptive plan, the execution of His Son on a Roman cross. Every event that preceded the cross, listen closely, saints, every single event that preceded the cross and every single event that has succeeded the cross points to and magnifies Jesus Christ as Lord. Everything up to it and everything since until His coming again magnifies, glorifies, and points to Jesus Christ. And so I'll tell you right now my desire for you. At the end of this sermon, you will see Christ more clearly. You will love Him more dearly. You will want to know Him more and more with each moment. His beauty, His majesty, His power, His reign will become so real to you, you will have to crawl out of here. And if by God's grace I preach faithfully and you hear God's word, that should happen. Pray for me on that, will you? The cross brings clarity where there is confusion. The cross brings light where there is darkness. The cross brings conviction where there is complacency. It brings joy where there's sadness. The cross fills all of this. And here I was going to try to stay tempered. I haven't even gotten to the point yet. All right, this morning I want to get some clarity from the cross. I want to see things more clearly, particularly four things. One, God's subjects, how they're clarified at the cross. Who's who? Who's who in humanity? Number two, God's history and its clarity that is brought to us at the cross. Number three, God's truth, how it is clarified at the cross, in particular, the Savior. And then lastly, man's joy and its clarity at the cross. Let's look at the first one, God's subjects and how they're clarified at the cross. Jesus said to Pilate in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. We looked at this last week. We're told that in John 19, 12, Pilate then sought to release him. And in the Greek, it means he did everything in his power to get rid of Jesus. I mean, he'd already tried, right? We looked last week at this. This man went to great efforts to separate himself from this divine appointment he had with Jesus. And here it says he did everything, everything to get rid of him. But the Jews cried out, now listen to this. 
Verse 12, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. These Jews were conniving, were they not? They knew if we can't get Pilate based upon the lies that we've set forth, then we'll go, we'll go to where his heart is. We will appeal to his potential disloyalty to Caesar. We'll go after his person. We'll go after his position. We'll go after his very life. Disloyalty to Caesar, Pilate knew, the Jews knew, meant consequences that were not good. And they knew that Pilate feared Caesar more than this broken down potential king that was in front of him. Emperor Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar, was known for being a highly suspicious emperor, and he was known for taking those who served him if they were not loyal to him and either banishing them or putting them to death. Look at verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, disloyalty to Caesar, when he heard these words, he brought Jesus out He sat down on the judgment seat of the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. So he realizes, I've got one of two choices. I let Christ go and I'm in trouble or I kill Christ and I can be set free. He had no way out. It was Jesus or Pilate. And so he takes the judgment seat. He's done. He's going to render a verdict. He's going to sentence Jesus to be crucified. Notice he does not He does not sentence him based upon a charge. He does not say he's guilty. He only exercises the sentence itself. Look at verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. This is a statement of scorn. It is a statement of derision. He is mocking them. He's saying, look at him. He's beaten. He's bloodied. He's powerless. What a fitting king for you, such a wretched people. They're unfazed. They're unflinching. Look at verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Thrice. In the Greek, he said, they say, away, away, crucify. It is the perfect rejection of the man, of his teachings, of his mission, and of his declaration to be the Son of God. They could not, they could not have said it with any greater emphasis. Away, away, crucify. Seeking to aggravate them more, Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And here they are bantering over the Son of God. And then from the chief priests themselves, these have to be some of the most egregious words, the most cutting words of this entire deliberation. Look with me, it says, The chief priests answered, and they said, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you say, this is not a surprise, Pastor. We've been listening, and we know that their hearts are dark. We know they have not been worshiping Yahweh. We know they've rejected Christ. But for them to say so boldly and so publicly without shame, these are the chief priests. These are the people that all of Israel had put their hope in to lead them and teach them and guide them in the ways of God. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. John was very careful to make sure He did not say the Jews. He did not say the Sanhedrin. He said the chief priests said this. The statement could not be more condemning in its irony. The very people that brought Jesus before Pilate to be executed accused him of what? Of blasphemy for saying that he was the son of God. And here we have the height of blasphemy. Isaiah 33, 22, which they no doubt had memorized. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He shall save us. 
and they declare before Pilate and before the crowd and before the world, and now our testimony today, we have no king but Caesar. One commentator said this was truly Satan's masterpiece. Satan's masterpiece. And what the chief priests reveal about themselves, and I would argue what the chief priests reveal about every man that rejects Jesus Christ as king is that Caesar is your king. If we do not recognize the king of the Jews, if we do not recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, then you do have a king, and it's not God. It is Caesar. You say, well, how can it be Caesar? Caesar represented the Roman world. He represented the flesh. And so here we are seeing in ourselves Pilate apart from Christ. And at the cross, the world is divided into two. I know that sounds polemic. It is. It sounds black and white. It is. The Scriptures have a tendency to do that. At the cross of Christ, all of humanity is divided into two groups, those who recognize and submit Jesus Christ as king and those who recognize and submit to Caesar. The compelling question for us and the compelling question for you this morning is, which king do you serve? It's a simple question, but the answer has eternal consequences attached to it. If it is Jesus Christ, if you know him as Lord, if you love him as Savior, if you follow him with all your life, what a glorious end you have with him. If it is Caesar, your end will be like that of Pilate's. It will be destruction. It will be misery. And it will be the wrath of God. This dividing line, I want you to notice, it splits all people, even the most religious. These are the chief priests. They had acted their part well. The people actually believed them and they followed them. And yet, because they rejected Christ, they rejected the free grace that Christ offers through the cross. That's one group. But there's another group, those who, will, who actually believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They will, they will read that inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and they will believe, and they will repent, and they'll have life. Religion here is a total failure. Do you see that? The chief priests miss God. Morality is a total failure here. Pontius Pilate missed God. You say, well, Pilate was not a moral man. He absolutely was not. But I want you to notice that he was trying to set Jesus free. Why? What did, G- what did Pilate say three times? I find no guilt in this man. Three times he said, I want to let him go. I want to let him go. He's trying to do the right thing. Granted, for ill motive, but he's trying. He is unsuccessful. He was unable to, in light of the pressure of Caesar, to surrender Christ freely. So what did he do? Verse 16, he delivered him over to them, to the Jews, to be crucified. Lenski was commenting on Luther's comment. I'm just going to read it to you. It's good. Without God's word, faith, and Christ, resolving ever so earnestly to do what is right, down man goes before the devil's onslaught. doesn't matter how religious you are or how hard you try to be moral, apart from Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel, you will go down with Satan as well. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. It will either be Christ or it'll be Caesar. It'll either be life or it'll be death. No one's exempt. Not the atheist, not the agnostic, not the religious, not the moral. Paul made this clear in Romans 14, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. At the cross, things become real clear. Maybe that's why we don't talk about it. 
Maybe that's why we don't preach on it too much. At the cross, the subjects of God and the subjects of Caesar become imminently clear. First point I want us to see. Second, I want us to see how history is clarified at the cross. Are you still with me? If you are, say amen. Very good. Number two, God's history is clarified. For centuries, centuries, the Bible has soundly refuted the false claims of every single man-made historical perspective. Naturalism, uh, rationalism, determinism, social evolution, dialectic theory, the cyclical view of history, and there are almost an infinite number of models put forth by man to explain human history. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? If you don't believe me, take a historiography class. You'll be overwhelmed with a number of models. From the beginning to the end, the Bible has made it imminently clear there is one story, and it's God's story. Creation, fall, redemption. That in the beginning, God created all that is seen and unseen, and God himself said what? It is good. And then we, mankind, we sinned. We sinned against God. We separated ourselves from God, and we infected all mankind. So all mankind is dead. And then the great story of redemption, that God sent his only begotten son to come to earth, to live our life and die our death and climb upon this cross that we might be redeemed. And the end, he's going to come again in glory. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And then his kingdom will reign forever. And this earth will be completely restored. That's the meta narrative. That's God's story. And that is the story of all human history. John brings great clarity to this. He's emphasizing this creation, fall, redemption story. Here in this passage, you say, Where? I don't see that, Pastor. The prophecies. The prophecies, of course. Why did John tell us these prophecies when he already knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written them in the synoptics? Why does he tell us these? And why does he add to them? He wants to highlight this point, listen with all your might, that God is in control of human history. God is sovereign over the details. And I'm talking the details, the particulars, the small pieces. History is not some cosmic chance as we move through the universe it's not purposeless it's not an accident it's not some some endless cycle of repetitious events from generation to generation human history all of creation is god's orchestrated purposed and planned ordained movement to bring himself glory and that's it Everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything that will happen is because God has ordained it to bring himself glory. The whole thing, all the good, all the bad, all the war, all the sickness, all those who are saved by grace to bring himself honor and glory, he exists for that purpose. And this becomes clear to us, I believe, and has for centuries in the prophetic detail that's revealed here at the cross. Centuries before Christ was born, and centuries before the crucifixion was even invented as a means of punishment, these prophecies were set forth for us. Look with me at the end of verse 16. Pilate surrendered Jesus over to be crucified, and we're told at the end of 16, so they took him, and he went out. We say, well, how is that prophetic? It fulfills Isaiah's prophecy on how the Messiah would go to his death. Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was led out silently. Keeping in step with the law, 
that a sacrifice of this nature, a sin offering, would be executed outside the city gates. Exodus 29, 14, the flesh of the bull you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And this is affirmed in Christ being crucified outside the city gates, cast out by his own people, and Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Look again at verse 16. So they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out doing what? Bearing his own cross. You say, where was the prophecy on that? Isaac carried the wood up the mountain that would be used for his own sacrifice. Genesis 22, verse 6, in the very beginning, right? We're talking about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and did what? He laid it on Isaac's back so together they would walk up the hill to sacrifice Isaac. Verse 18, there they crucified him. We'll come back to that. There they crucified him and with with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Centuries, my beloved, this is amazing. Centuries before the mode of crucifixion had been invented. Centuries. The Old Testament was talking about it. In fact, we can go all the way back to Numbers chapter 21 when when the serpents were biting the Israelites for their sin and God told Moses this. He said, make a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. This is prophesying, pointing to the crucifixion and the raising up of Jesus Christ. Jesus affirms this in his own ministry. He says three times of his own death by crucifixion in the gospel, I will be lifted up, and actually refers to this in Numbers 21. Just like the fiery serpent upon the pole, when they looked at him, they lived, so too those who look at me shall live. The detailed description, and I need not tell you this because you know, of Isaiah 53 is absolutely staggering. In fact, it's so staggering, I don't know if you know this, in conservative synagogues in this area and probably throughout the nation, maybe throughout the world, as they read through certain portions of Scripture, you know they intentionally do not read Isaiah 53. They stay away from it. They have to. Because the, spe- the specificity is nothing other than God-ordained. Isaiah 53, 5, Jesus was what? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 52, 14, he was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53, 3, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgressions of my people even prophesying about those with whom he would be crucified. Isaiah 53, 12, he was numbered with the transgressors, two to be exact, one on either side. Detail so specific. No, listen, no reasonable mind can conclude random chance or coincidence. You cannot, even down to the Lord's clothing, and what they did with it after he died. Look again with me at John 19, verse 23. You want to talk about details? God gives you details. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Likely, his robe, his girdle, his sandals, and his head covering. Likely, those are the four equal parts. And now they have the tunic. His tunic also, that's the outer garment, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
This was to fulfill the scripture which says, this is from Psalm 22, 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, so the soldiers did these things. David, 1,000 years before the crucifixion and the distribution of our Lord's uh, clothes on the cross, a thousand years, writes a psalm talking about how his clothes would be divided amongst the soldiers and they would actually gamble over it. This is just a sampling, my beloved. There are over 300 prophecies, specific prophecies, pertaining to life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. The evidence is overwhelming. It is abundant. And the teaching for us is to know that God is sovereign. This is His narrative. The creation, fall, redemption story permeates all of Scripture and it permeates all of human history if we have eyes to see. We don't see it because we don't want to see it. It has revealed from the very beginning that God would come in the form of a man as a suffering servant and climb upon that cross for us. That He would do this incredible work. This is the grand narrative. It is not man's story. All the theories that try to understand human history and where we've come from and why we're here and where we're going, they all fail because they all start with man. This is God's story. And and we're brought into that story, but it's his story. And the leading actor or actors or actresses, it's not mankind, it's Jesus Christ. He's the lead. He wins the Emmy. He gets the Oscar. The apostle wants us to see that all that was taking place, none of these events surrounding the cross, not his arrest, not the trial, not the beatings, not the mocking, not the dialogue with Pilate, not the fact that the chief priest said, you know, that Caesar's our king. None of these things were happening by chance. This was all ordained and all planned perfectly in great detail by God. It's his story. It's his story. He's over it. He's in it. He's directing it. Nothing, nothing was left to chance. And you know, you say, well, how is that possible? God, therefore, must be what? He must be all-knowing. He is. He must be all-powerful. He is. He also must be omnipresent in every place at all times. Otherwise, he wouldn't know what's going on over there. He is. And this is the God whom we serve. And this is the God who sent Christ, that we might glorify him now and forever. An all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God. Only He can do such glorious things. So from the cross, I pray we've seen, one, the subjects. Who are they? Number two, God's history, the direction of it by God. Number three, truth is declared at the cross. The Savior is made known. Look with me again at verse 19. Such incredible verses. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, crucifixions, we talked about this last night, or last Sunday. These were particularly horrific means of putting someone to death. And the Romans, and they were savvy, they would put... They would put the people that were crucified near a major intersection or on a major thoroughfare so that lots of people would walk by. And it was very common for the, the governor or the prefect to put a sign upon, around the neck of the victim or upon the cross saying what the crime was so that everybody who walked by thought, well, I'm not going to commit that crime because if I do, that's what's going to happen to me. It was a great deterrent for criminal activity. Pilate puts a sign up. 
but it doesn't state a crime. Why? What crime would he put? Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. There was no crime to put upon the cross. So what does Pilate do? Pilate says, all right, I'll get the last word in. One more shot, one more jab at these Jews. I'll get them. And he puts a sign that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This was, remember, this was the false accusation the Jews made against Christ when they brought him originally. They said he's an insurrector, he's not paying his taxes, and, oh, by the way, he says he's a king, which was, of course, a lie. He puts his alleged identity, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. His intention is to humiliate the Jews. The inscription was written in all three major communicative languages, Aramaic, Latin, and the Greek. Therefore, Jew and Gentile reading it could see it. Maximum humiliation in Pilate's mind, and we know maximum communication, maximum revelation in the mind of God. So who could know this? All mankind, this Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It says in verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription. And then in verse 21, the chief priest of the, of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. They're infuriated, right? But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The king of the Jews was a messianic phrase. It did not just mean this local king of Judea. It meant the savior of the world. It meant the one that the prophecies had all pointed to. And so the, the chief priests, they're like, this is bad. This is the exact opposite of what they would have wanted. I mean, here's this man bloodied and beaten, hanging upon a cross, and this is their great Messiah. So they go to Pilate and they say, don't, don't put that. Put that he said, even though he had not. Let's just perpetuate the lie. Pilate, probably reveling in their misery, said emphatically, what I have written, I have written. And he's saying, listen, you may have pushed me into this, killing this innocent man, but I'm going to have the last word. This is extraordinary, my beloved. I want you to catch this. God uses the lies sown by the chief priests and the pride of Pontius Pilate to punctuate this most horrific historical event with a most magnificent truth claim. In writing, on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Not some earthly king who ruled over a little patch of land in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. The savior of the world. Pilate put that up there. The king of the Jews. The long-awaited Messiah for Jew and for Gentile for all generations. Our Lord, if you remember, he entered the world with such a declaration. You should all know this. For those of you who have attended many a Christmas service, the Magi, when they visited him from the east, they came after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. This is from Matthew 2. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to what? To worship him. During his triumphant entry, we saw this in John chapter 12. When our Lord entered Jerusalem in his final week of life, the people cried out, what? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Help, Hosanna, help, I pray. Save now, I pray. And we looked at this when we studied John 12. Every single Jew, young and old, would have known what this meant. It was sung at every major feast in the morning. It's called the Hallel, Psalms 113 to 118. 
and they would sing this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Everyone would have known they're talking about the Messiah. They're not talking about some little king here in the Middle East. They're talking about the savior of the world. They're talking about the king of the Jews. My beloved, in God's glorious creation, fall, redemption story, knowing this savior is imperative. The one who has the power to bring God the Father glory in the redemption of your soul is essential for you to know. In fact, we've looked at this several times. John wrote this entire book, John 20, 31. These are written so that you what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the Son of God, is the King of the Jews, that he is this man, the Son of God, and that by believing you will what? You may have eternal life. And we've looked at that too. That's not just going on forever and ever. That is knowing God and being loved by God. That's having the presence and the joy and the glory of God forever. That's the eternal life you ought to want. All right. This truth is declared by God and it's declared by God's enemies at the cross this single, most salient, most important truth, and that's the identity of Jesus the Christ, that he is who he says he was, that he is who the Bible says that he is. This truth is boldly declared, and it is a foreshadowing, my beloved, a friend and foe, with that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King. So at the cross, we see the subjects of God, we see the history of God, we see the truth of God. I want to show you one more, and I'll close. I want to show you how man's joy comes into view at the cross. Last point, number four, man's joy is clarified at the cross. John Stott said, the Christian community is a community of the cross, for it has been brought into being by the cross, and the focus of its worship is the Lamb once slain, now glorified. Now, given your understanding of a crucifixion and the cross that took place here, it's hard to imagine how a community could be cultivated from such a horrific event in human history. It's equally difficult to understand how this could possibly be good for us or for any man, for that matter. I mean, if Jesus was indeed the Son of God and He came to earth as He said He was born and He came to earth to testify to the truth and our response to Him was not worship, and adoration, and honor, and service. Our response to him was what? We didn't believe him. We rejected him. When he got too personal and too close, and he started talking about our sin and the need to be saved, what did we do? We made false accusations against him. When he pressed it even further, and he started performing all these miracles and signs, and he said, believe in the Father because of these things, we said, you know what? We need to get rid of him. And so we did. We made up lies about him. And we got the powers that be to go and arrest him. And he was arrested even though he did nothing wrong. And then what? Then he was brought before men who were supposed to love God. Instead, they hated God. And they brought false charges against him. And even though they couldn't find anything against him, they knew they wanted him dead. So they took him to this man, Pontius Pilate. And they told Pontius Pilate lies. They put Pilate in such a box that he couldn't get out. And he was, he was humiliated and he was beaten. And then Pilate finally said, all right, execute the man, and he was sentenced to the cross. This is how we treated the Son of God. This is how we treated the King of the universe. And if that's the case, my beloved, then we should have no reason to believe any good would come from that action. 
How could good come to mankind for treating God in such a way? The Apostle John is strangely brief in the recording of the actual event. Look again at verse 18. I hope this caught your eye when you read through it the first time. Verse 18, it simply states, there they crucified him. And that's it. In fact, the synoptics are equally brief. They're brief about the crucifixion. They're brief about the resurrection. If the cross is, as Stott says, the birthplace of the church, or as Robbie says, the crux of human history, then why so little said of the actual event here or in the other Gospels? Why? Why? I believe there's a reason, my beloved. I believe that John the Apostle is being brief intentionally. I believe he is allowing the real work of the cross to come through. The real work. You say, well, wasn't what Christ was doing, weren't the beatings, wasn't the actual piercing of him and his bleeding, wasn't that all the work? Absolutely. In fact, we're going to celebrate that during communion at the end of this service. So yes, that was. But that wasn't the greatest work. You know this. The greatest work is what Christ did that we could not see. The greatest work was the reconciliation of man back to God by Jesus Christ doing what, first, what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, by Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the cross. Christ saw the dividing line and said, no more, no more. I will take their sins. I will take the just punishment in myself so that they might be forgiven and set free and given my righteousness. So they might have my joy and be made into a real community, a community of believers both now and forever. Christ did this that we might be reconciled. You say, well, that word is used a lot. To reconcile, very simply, it's to make a bad relationship good. If you're at odds with a brother or sister, if you're at odds with a friend and you want to reconcile, you'll go and you'll make things right. You will seek forgiveness. You will give forgiveness. The reconciliation that Christ takes care of on the cross is our reconciliation with God, the creator of his creation. I know this may surprise some of you, but if God were on Facebook and you were to send him a friend request without Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, you know what would happen. You say, well, he would deny me as a friend. He would do that. And he would actually have to create on Facebook another category. Not friend denied, but enemy. Not enemy, but chief enemy. That's what we would receive back from God the Father apart from Jesus Christ. You say, well, why is that? Why am I an enemy of God? Sin has separated us from him. His life-giving, life-sustaining relationship has been separated as a result of sin. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. My beloved, we cannot be a community of believers. We cannot know the joy of Christ. We cannot have a relationship with God unless these sins are paid for, and you cannot pay for them yourselves. You cannot. The only way for our iniquities to be taken away and that barrier to be removed and us to come back into a right relationship with God is if Christ takes them away. And the only way he could do that is if he received the full punishment on the cross for your sins, for my sins, for every single person who would believe. Sin creates the barrier, 
The sin has to be paid for. The payment of every single sin is what? The payment of every single sin, no matter how small you think it is in your mind, is an eternity in hell. You say, well, how did Jesus do that? How did this man climb upon the cross and experience hell forever? Isn't he seated at the right hand of the Father? Yes. Wasn't he raised from the dead? Yes. Didn't he ascend into heaven? Yes. How did he do this? On the cross, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Upon the cross, Jesus experienced, and listen please, he experienced the full equivalency of your just punishment. You say, well, what is my just punishment? For one sin, the just punishment is an eternity in hell. You know, only 19% of Americans today, this is in a recent survey done by Legionnaires and Lifeway, only 19% believe that a single sin is sufficient to send a person to hell. Only 19% believe that. That's 81% who say no. One sin, James 2.10, for whatever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking them all. It only takes one sin. So Jesus Christ upon the cross paid for that one sin, that tenth sin, that hundredth sin, that thousandth sin, that ten thousand sins, the millions of sins that we have committed in our lives. He did that. He received the equivalency of it. You say, well, how? He, he didn't go to hell. No, he did not, by the way. This is what we call in theology, there are several terms. One is virtual equivalency. Christ received it in some mystical supernatural way, Jesus Christ did indeed experience your hell, your eternity in hell. He took that in total, and not just you. This is what's so extraordinary to me. He took the millions of sins that I, that I rightly and, and justly deserve to be punished for. He took mine, and He took yours, and He took Peter's, and He took John's, and He took every single saint going all the way back to the very beginning and the covenant with Abraham, and he'll take every sin of every saint, everyone who repents and believes until he comes again in glory, millions upon millions, if not trillions of sins, he bore on the cross for us. A punishment so extreme, I don't believe we could, we could put it in words. This is what he did. This is what he did for us, to create a community of believers that would bring his Father glory to create a community of believers that would not only be forgiven completely of their sins, washed white as snow, but be brought into the community of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, brought into that incredible, glory-giving, glory-receiving community forever and to enjoy God's love. Paul writes in Romans 5, God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. He did this great work upon the cross when we were still dead in our sins and uncircumcision of our flesh. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Much more. I love that emphasis. How much more? Infinitely more. And then he says more than that. Listen now. We also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation, we also now, we rejoice. We rejoice. Why? We've been reconciled. You can send your friend request. 
in Christ. You can send that to God, and God says, oh, you are my friend. You have no idea what a friend of mine you are. And you're not just my friend. You're a son or a daughter. You're a citizen of my kingdom. You're a loyal subject. We are to rejoice because of the reconciliation we have with God through Jesus Christ. We are to rejoice. On the cross, Jesus Christ brings to man the ultimate joy. Listen, if you haven't heard a thing I've said for the past 40 minutes, tune in now for the last few. I do believe we miss this. I miss it. I don't want to miss it anymore. And I don't want us to as a church. On the cross, Jesus brings to us the ultimate joy, the hope of being delivered from the power of sin and death and the grave and hell, of overcoming all that and being brought into the presence of God Almighty. And not just to stand there in fear and in awe, but to be known by God and to love God and to be loved by Him. The presence of the most radiant, most beautiful, most powerful, almighty Creator God to be brought into His presence and to know joy. Why? Because He is the essence and the foundation of joy. It's Him, it's Christ. The greatest clarity you can get from the cross is Jesus Christ and say, I know Kim because I know Him I've been brought into this community and because I'm here in this community with Him, by Him, and through Him. I have joy. What kind of joy? A joy that cannot be taken away. I'm not talking about the kind of joy you get when you go to the amusement park and you get on that ride that makes your tummy feel a little tickly. That's great joy. I mean, that is I'm not talking about that joy that when you sit down for your birthday meal and you have that one meal you're forbidden to have the other 364 days of the year and you eat that, you say, this is joy. I'm not even talking about the joy of your marriage or the joy of seeing your children born. I'm talking about the very essence of joy. I'm talking about a joy that gives credence and purpose and value to all the other joys we just listed. It is a glorious thing to be married, and it's a glorious thing to have children, and it's a glorious thing to get that meal on your birthday. All that joy, if it's real, is because of God. It's because of the joy that we have in God. Piper has a most famous saying, and I put part of it up on the board outside. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. You've probably heard that a hundred times. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. My beloved, when we look to the cross and we see the great work that Jesus did to honor His Father, to bring joy to His Father, when we see that, when we look to the cross and we see that His people are made known there, when we look to the cross and we see that God's incredible story of creation and fall redemption is revealed there, When we look to the cross and we see that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world, it must, if we believe that and follow, it must bring an overwhelming joy to your life. Because it brings Christ. It brings the Father. It brings the Holy Spirit. The Holy Triune God becomes yours. If God created all that is seen and unseen, to bring himself glory because he is the most exalted, most magnificent, most glorious one. He deserves it all. And if he sent 
his son, and then the Holy Spirit to make a community of believers who would receive that glory and then reflect that glory and majesty back to him on earth and in heaven forever. And this is your very reason for being. Why are you here? What is your purpose? To what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You say, I know my purpose. Then ought we not do everything in our power to enjoy God the most? I mean, ought we not, looking at the cross, do everything in our power to rejoice the most in God because of Christ? To know Him. I mean to know Him. Enough stepping around Him. Know Him. Know Him more today. Know Him more from this passage. To love Him. To be able to say, without that rote scriptural memorization, I love Him with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul and all my strength. I love Him now. I'll love Him tomorrow. I'll love Him forever. He's all of my life. That's joy in God. If Piper's right, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, then should we not pursue our deepest satisfaction in God for His glory? Should we not? Should we not feed upon the Word and go to God in prayer and gather like this on a Sunday morning and hear someone talk and talk and talk about Him and you say, are you done yet? No, you say, keep telling me about my Lord. Tell me about Him more. I want to know Him more. I want to love Him more. I mean, how, how often do we gather in these places and say, all right, you know what? You got your 35 minutes. Shouldn't it be the opposite? Shouldn't it be keep feeding us, keep telling us? You don't do that. I praise God for that. When we look to the cross and the crucified Savior, we see his wounds that healed us. We see the sacrifice that pardons us. We see the blood that covers us. We see the work that satisfies the righteousness of God. Because of that, shouldn't we look to Him and see Him, His work, His person, and should we not rejoice with a joy that is truly everlasting? Should that not fill our days? Should we not wake up tomorrow morning with whatever you got on your plate, and some of you have stuff on your plate, and you say, this morning, I rejoice in my Savior, Christ. Might we be weak in our faith as a people because we simply do not enjoy God enough. We just don't enjoy Him enough. We do not experience and revel daily in who He is, in His beauty, in His infinite nature, in His power, in the fact that He would give Christ to redeem us in His righteousness, in His wrath. I believe we find greater or equal joy in the creation. And therefore we are, as Paul says in Romans 1, we are fools. We're fools. Or as C.S. Lewis would say, we're playing with mud pies and we can be out on holiday. Paul said we are to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. My beloved, you're not an enemy of God. You're a friend. You have 
joy. It is Christ. Rejoice in Him. And that is an imperative. Let's command ourselves to rejoice in God. Let's command ourselves to be people who rejoice in God daily. Let's command ourselves as a church when we go out in the world for people to see us and not understand us because of the joy that permeates every pore of our body. And they say, how do you have that joy? And you say, let me tell you about my Savior. Let me tell you about the King of the Jews. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I have failed in this for much of my life. For much of my walk with Christ, I have not rightly rejoiced in the work that He accomplished on the cross to bring reconciliation between me and you. As a pastor, I have seen my brothers and sisters not rightly rejoicing in Christ not having that daily substance, that foundation upon the rock who is joy, filling us with this joy, making our joy complete. Forgive us, Father, as a church. Forgive Cambrian Park. Forgive your evangelical church throughout the world. Father, I ask you to do more than that. Don't just forgive us, Lord. Fill us. Fill us with that joy. If we've missed it before this morning, then let us not miss it anymore. Let us gaze upon the cross, the wondrous cross, the old rugged cross. Let us gaze upon it and see our our beautiful, crucified, risen Savior. Let us know the sacrifice and let us rejoice that it was not us. God, do that for us. We ask this, Lord, not selfishly, although we know it will that will extend many blessings to us. We ask it for your glory. We ask it that we as a people, as small as we may be, might magnify you so brilliantly in our lives and as a church, as a community, that this place, Cambrian Park, San Jose, will be changed by it. You are so worthy. You are so worthy. Father, glorify yourself in that way, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.